The Blunt Post with Vic. Good morning, happy Monday, and welcome to The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, the editor and publisher of The Blunt Post. The Blunt Post with Vic is a program that covers national, regional, and local headline news, offers analysis and commentary, and I interview members of Congress, local elected officials, and other high-profile public figures. I'm very excited for my special guest today. He is an exceptional member of Congress whom I admire very much. Uh, He's a genuine leader who fights tirelessly for the rights of all Americans and even people around the world. Uh, That's New Jersey Congressman Frank Pallone. My interview with Congressman Pallone is after the news and the Let's Get Blunt segment, so stay tuned. Here are some news items from over the weekend and this morning. The latest COVID variant is one and a half times more contagious than Omicron and already circulating in almost half of U.S. states. The Omicron sub-variant, known as BA.2, is one and a half times more transmittable than the original Omicron strain, according to Danish scientists. The UK Health Agency on Friday said BA.2 has a substantial growth advantage over the original Omicron known as BA.1. Nearly half of U.S. states have confirmed the presence of BA.2, with at least 127 known cases nationwide as of Friday. The U.S. has warned a Russian invasion of Ukraine would be horrific for both sides while calling for a diplomatic solution as tensions over Moscow's military buildup on the border of the country continued to simmer. Speaking at the Pentagon on Friday, top U.S. officials urged a focus on diplomacy while saying that Russia now has enough troops and equipment in place to threaten the whole of Ukraine. On Friday, President Joe Biden said he would send a small number of U.S. troops to Eastern European and NATO countries in the near term. The Pentagon has already placed about 8,500 U.S. troops on standby for possible deployment to Europe amid Russia's military buildup near Ukraine's border. Well, because he's never seen sanctions like the ones I promised will be imposed if he moves, number one. Number two, we're in a situation where uh, Vladimir Putin uh, is about to, uh, we've had very frank discussions, uh, Vladimir Putin and I, and uh, The idea that NATO is not going to be united, I don't buy. I've spoken to every major NATO leader. We've had the NATO-Russian summit. We've had other, the OSCE has met, et cetera. And so I think what you're going to see is that Russia will be held accountable if it invades. And it depends on what it does. It's one thing if it's a minor incursion and then we end up having a fight about what to do and not do, et cetera. But if they actually do what they're capable of doing with the force amassed on the border, it is going to be a disaster for Russia if they further invade Ukraine and that our allies and partners are ready to impose severe cost and significant harm on Russia and the Russian economy. And, you know, we're going to fortify our NATO allies, I told him, on the eastern flank if, in fact, he does invade. We're going to I've already shipped over six hundred million dollars worth of sophisticated equipment, defensive equipment to the Ukrainians. The cost of going into Ukraine in terms of physical loss of life for the Russians, they will be able to prevail over time. But it's going to be heavy. It's going to be real. It's going to be consequential. In addition to that, Putin has, you know, has a. A stark choice, uh, he, either de-escalation or diplomacy, a confrontation of the consequences. And look, I think you're going to see, for example, everybody talks about how Russia has control over the, uh, the energy supply uh, that Europe absorbs. Well, guess what? That, 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 that money that they earn from that makes about 45% of the economy. I don't see that as a one-way street. They go ahead and cut it off. It's like my mother used to say, you're biting your nose off to spite your face. It's not like they have all these wonderful choices out there. 
I spoke with the Prime Minister of Finland. And, uh, you know, we're talking about uh, uh, concern on the part of Finland and Sweden about what Russia is doing. The last thing that, that, that Russia needs is Finland deciding to change its status. They didn't say they're going to do that. But they're talking about what, in fact, is going on and how outrageous Russia is being. We're finding ourselves in a position where I believe you'll see that uh, there'll be severe economic consequences. For example, anything that involves dollar denominations, if they make a, if they invade, they're going to pay. They're not going, their banks will not be able to deal in dollars. Well, let me start by first saying a few words about Russia and Ukraine. Uh, I've been absolutely clear with President Putin. He has no misunderstanding if any any assembled Russian units move across the Ukrainian border, that is an invasion. But it will be met with severe and coordinated economic response that I've discussed in detail with our allies, as well as laid out very clearly for President Putin. But there is no doubt, let there be no doubt at all, that if Putin makes this choice, Russia will pay a heavy price. There's also not the only scenario we need to be prepared for. Russia has a long history of using measures other than overt military action to carry out aggression. And paramilitary tactics, so-called gray zone attacks, as, and actions by Russian soldiers not wearing Russian uniforms. Remember when they moved into the Donbass, the little green men? They, weren't, they, they were dealing with uh, um, those uh, who were Russian sympathizers and uh, said that Russia had no, nobody in there. Well. That includes little green men in uniforms as well as cyber attack. We've, we have to be ready to respond to these as well in a decisive and united way with a range of tools at our disposal. The Ukrainian foreign minister said this morning that he's confident of our support and resolve, and he has a right to be. This morning, Secretary Blinken uh, spoke with Russian Foreign Minister Lavrov. They agreed to meet in Geneva, uh, as, you, as you noted. At that meeting, uh, Secretary Blinken will urge Russia to take immediate steps to de-escalate. Uh, he will also fly to Kyiv to consult with President Zelensky and Ukraine's leaders and to Germany for consultations. As you also know, there is a congressional delegation that is also uh, on their way there. Um, and it's a note to, I would note that that just indicates that support for Ukraine has always been a bipartisan issue, and we welcome that. But where things stand right now, President Putin has created this crisis by amassing 100,000 Russian troops along Ukraine's borders. This includes moving Russian forces into Belarus recently. Uh, uh, for joint exercises and conducting additional exercises on Ukraine's eastern border. So let's be clear. Our view is this is an extremely dangerous situation. We are now at a stage where Russia could at any point launch an attack in Ukraine. Uh, and what Secretary Blinken is going to go do uh, is highlight very clearly there is a diplomatic path forward. It is the choice of President Putin and the Russians to make whether they are going to suffer severe economic consequences or not. Today, Ambassador Sullivan delivered our written response in Moscow. All told, it sets out a serious diplomatic path forward, should Russia choose it. The document we've delivered includes concerns of the United States and our allies and partners about Russia's actions that undermine security, a principled and pragmatic evaluation of the concerns that Russia has raised, and our own proposals for areas where we may be able to find common ground. We make clear that there are core principles that we are committed to uphold and defend including Ukraine's sovereignty and territorial integrity and the right of states to choose their own security arrangements and alliances. We've addressed the possibility of reciprocal transparency measures regarding force posture in Ukraine, as well as measures to increase confidence regarding military exercises and maneuvers in Europe. Uh, and we address other areas where we see potential for progress, including arms control related to missiles in Europe, our interest in a follow-on agreement to the New START Treaty that covers all nuclear weapons, and ways to increase transparency and stability. We put these ideas forward because they have the potential, if negotiated in good faith, to enhance our security and that of our allies and partners, while also addressing Russia's stated concerns through reciprocal commitments. Our response to Russia reflects what I said in Kyiv, Berlin, and Geneva last week. We're open to dialogue. We prefer diplomacy and we're prepared to move forward where there is the possibility of communication and cooperation if Russia de-escalates its aggression toward Ukraine, stops the inflammatory rhetoric, and approaches discussions about the future of security in Europe 
in a spirit of reciprocity. Our responses were fully coordinated with Ukraine and our European allies and partners, with whom we've been consulting continuously for weeks. We sought their input and incorporated it into the final version delivered to Moscow. Additionally, NATO developed and will deliver to Moscow its own paper with ideas and concerns about collective security in Europe, and that paper fully reinforces ours and vice versa. There's no daylight among the United States and our allies and partners on these matters. We shared our response paper with Congress, and I'll be briefing congressional leaders on this later today and consulting with them on our approach. As you know, there's strong bipartisan interest and deep expertise on the Hill when it comes to Ukraine and Russia, and we very much appreciate having Congress as a partner as we move forward. We're not releasing the document publicly because we think that diplomacy has the best chance to succeed if we provide space for confidential talks. We hope and expect that Russia will have the same view and will take our proposal seriously. I expect to speak to Foreign Minister Lavrov in the coming days after Moscow has had a chance to read the paper and is ready to discuss next steps. There should be no doubt about our seriousness of purpose when it comes to diplomacy, and we're acting with equal focus and force to bolster Ukraine's defenses and prepare a swift, united response to further Russian aggression. Three deliveries of U.S. defensive military assistance arrive in Kyiv this week, carrying additional Javelin missiles and other anti-armor systems, 283 tons of ammunition and non-lethal equipment essential to Ukraine's frontline defenders. More deliveries are expected in the days to come. We provided more defensive security assistance to Ukraine in the past year than in any previous year. Last week, I authorized U.S. allies, including Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, to provide U.S. origin military equipment from their inventories for use by Ukraine. Also last week, we notified Congress of our intent to deliver to Ukraine the MI-17 helicopters currently held in Defense Department inventories, five of them. Additionally, the Secretary of Defense announced on Monday that 8,500 U.S. service members currently stationed in Europe and the United States have been placed in heightened readiness, heightened readiness to deploy to ensure that we're able to support the NATO response force swiftly if it's activated by the North Atlantic Council to harden the Allies' eastern flank. Other NATO allies have also announced steps that they're prepared to take, and we expect more in the coming days. We've taken this step out of prudence. Uh, we hope those forces don't have to be activated for deployment. But if they are, we will be ready. We're also continuing to coordinate with our European allies and partners on severe economic sanctions to hold Moscow accountable for its actions. We've developed a high-impact, quick-action response that would inflict significant costs on the Russian economy and financial system. As part of our response, we're also prepared to impose export controls that will have a longer-term effect, denying Russia products that it needs to fulfill its strategic ambitions. On top of all of that, our allies and partners are also stepping up to provide assistance to Ukraine in various and mutually reinforcing ways. As we've done many times before, the alliance and individual allies are coming together to support our partners and to defend what should be inviolable principles that have helped provide unprecedented security stability and prosperity for decades in Europe and around the world. Finally, we're looking to support our allies and partners in dealing with the secondary negative consequences of Russia's destabilizing acts. For example, we know that Ukraine's economy and financial position is being affected by this crisis. And just as we're bolstering Ukraine's security, so too are we looking for how we can support its economy beyond the significant assistance we're already provided. Our European allies and partners are doing so as well. And that's another matter that I'll have an opportunity to discuss with Congress later this afternoon. Uh, as we're taking steps to ensure that uh, the global energy supply isn't disrupted, uh, that too is an important focus. Should Russia choose to weaponize its natural gas by cutting supply to Europe even more than it's already done? We're in discussions with governments and major producers around the world about surging their capacity. We're engaged in detailed conversations with our allies and partners about coordinating our response, including how best to deploy their existing energy stockpiles. All this effort is aimed at mitigating price shocks and ensuring that people in the United States, Europe, and around the world have the energy they need, no matter what Russia decides to do. All told, our actions over the past week 
have sharpened the choice facing Russia now. We've laid out a diplomatic path. We've lined up steep consequences should Russia choose further aggression. We've stepped forward with more support for Ukraine's security and economy. And we and our allies and partners are united across the board. Now we'll continue to press forward and prepare. It remains up to Russia to decide how to respond. We're ready either way. One final note before I take some questions. Regarding American citizens in Ukraine, as you know, earlier this week, I authorized the voluntary departure of a limited number of U.S. employees and ordered the departure of many family members of embassy personnel from Ukraine. This was a decision based on one factor only, the safety and security of our colleagues and their families. And given the continued massive buildup of Russian forces on Ukraine's borders, which has many indications of preparations for an invasion, these steps were the prudent ones to take. I want to be clear that our embassy in Kyiv will remain open and we continue to maintain a robust presence to provide diplomatic, economic, and security support to Ukraine. The State Department has also issued an updated travel advisory due to the potential for security conditions to deteriorate rapidly and without warning if Russia invades or commits other destabilizing actions inside Ukraine. Our message now for any Americans in Ukraine is to strongly consider leaving using commercial or other privately available transportation options. These options remain readily available. And the embassy may extend loans to those who can't afford the cost of a commercial ticket. While the State Department will always seek to provide consular services wherever possible, Russian military action would severely impact our ability to perform that work. And if Russia invades, civilians, including Americans still in Ukraine, could be caught in a conflict zone between combatant forces. The U.S. government may not be in a position to aid individuals in these circumstances. This has long been the case in conflict zones around the world. So, while we don't know whether Russia will continue its aggression toward Ukraine, either way, we have a responsibility to provide this notice to Americans there. South Carolina U.S. District Judge J. Michelle Childs is among the people President Biden is considering as a Supreme Court nominee the White House confirmed Friday night. Child is one of a number of women who have been set to be on the president's shortlist, including DC Circuit Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson, California Supreme Court Justice Leandra Kruger, and civil rights attorney Sherilyn Ifill. Campaign organizers seeking to recall Los Angeles County District Attorney George Gascon can now start collecting signatures in their second bid to remove the progressive prosecutor from office, officials said. The county's registrar's office approved the new recall petition Thursday that requires organizers to gather signatures of support from 10% of the county's registered voters a little more than 560,000 people by July 6. Organizers halted their first recall attempt last fall after they were unable to gather the necessary signatures by the end of October. It's nearly impossible to, for Republicans to win office in California, so they're increasingly attacking elected officials with recalls to force themselves into office. It happened when they recalled former California Governor Gray Davis and replaced them with Arnold Schwarzenegger. And more recently, they attempted to do the same with the current governor of California, Gavin Newsom, but voters rejected it. Let's get blunt. Let's get blunt. So for today's Let's Get Blunt, I'm going to get very blunt about the double standard that exists in so many spaces in our world, in our society, in the international community, agencies, politics, etc. And I'm going to focus on the current issue or issues um, in Ukraine, starting with Ukraine and uh, what is happening, or at least what we are being told is happening on the surface. Because as most of us know, there's so much underneath the surface um, that is not reported um, by mainstream media, commercial media. But on the surface, we're told that Russia is about to invade Ukraine. And if so, the U.S. and other European nations will um, intervene, etc. When many brilliant analysts are saying that this is really uh, not the case, uh, Russia, if, if anything, is going to 
sort of uh, encroach on one city that it feels is part of the old sort of Russian uh, leftover from the Soviet era that it wants to reclaim. Um, and that this is really about NATO wanting to flex its muscles and say, here, we de-escalated a uh, you know, potential war. Uh, we are very relevant, etc. cetera. Uh, and it's also a way for Putin to say, uh, don't sort of come into my neighborhood and honor the original pact that was uh, made when NATO was uh, created. Anyways, but that's not even the point. The point I'm trying to make is this. Based on a potential, okay, so a quote-unquote potential attack on Ukraine, the U.S. and a lot of European countries, but let's just focus on the U.S. with uh, President Biden and Secretary Blinken, our State Department, and many politicians are just ready to go to war, uh, you know, as if we're going to start World War III to save lives, quote-unquote. But here's the thing. Nobody's life is more important than others, or at least it shouldn't be in an ideal world. But here's the thing. A year and a half ago, in 2020, a rogue dictator terrorist nations of Azerbaijan and Turkey with hired mercenaries that were ISIS as well as Syrian, Libyan, and Pakistani mercenaries orchestrated a genocidal attack and ethnic cleansing on the Armenians of the autonomous Republic of Artsakh, also known as Nagorno-Karabakh, and massacred 5,000 Armenians in 44 days. But most people didn't even hear about it. There was a deafening silence in just throughout the world. You'd have to really look to find some sort of a statement from someone. Of course, uh, many members of Congress uh, who had the humanity, who had the who knew what was happening, they spoke up. But I'm talking about U.S. as a whole, Secretary Blinken uh, and President Biden. All you heard were uh, toxic both-sidedism, sort of with this robotic statements that they made where they did false balance on what was happening. So my question is, why is it that Armenia, which is not that far away from Ukraine, they're both Eastern European countries, Armenia is in the South Caucasus, Ukraine is in the, the, what, the greater Caucasus. Why is it that Armenians' lives didn't matter? Why is it that even a quarter, even a tenth of this pandemonium wasn't uh, created when this was happening in 2020 and we were killing ourselves trying to get somebody's attention and nothing was happening? And remember, Turkey, who engineered and helped Azerbaijan to, to plan and orchestrate and supply weapons to Azerbaijan to do all of this, is a member of NATO. And yet, they walked away with impunity. So is this a part of NATO's um, values? To allow its members to uh, orchestrate ethnic cleansing and massacres? And by the way, this is still happening. Armenia and Artsakh are under threat as we speak by Azerbaijan and Turkey. And yet, because... Armenia is a tiny nation of 3 million, and Artsakh is, well, after two-thirds of its population uh, that became refugees, is left with maybe about 50 or 60,000 people with not much of natural resources to offer to the world. Uh, it's being ignored. And of course, uh, whatever natural resources Artsakh has is now under occupation of uh, Azerbaijan. Uh, gold mines, as well as water resources. So why the double standard? And I'm saying this as a Democrat. I'm saying this as a progressive. I'm saying this as someone who voted for President Biden. But you've got to call them out. I don't care if they're Democrat or Republican or Independent or what they are. The bottom line is, why? Why didn't you, with, with a single phone call, and I, I understand that at the time this happened, uh, president Biden wasn't the president. It was it was Trump. But of course, Trump, forget about him. I mean, he was, 
you know, pals with uh, Erdogan and Aliyev, and, uh, you know, likely he gave them a green light to what they did. But, but now, now President Biden can do a lot more. President Biden lifted Section 907 of the Freedom Act and gave Azerbaijan $100 million of military aid just last year. And this is after Azerbaijan invaded Artsakh and killed 5,000 people. So we've got to call them out. We've got to get blunt um, about these things and say, why is this really happening? What is, the, what is the real reason that Ukraine has become this pandemonium? Is it about energy? Is it about um, sort of a Cold War era type of a, a conflict between Russia and uh, US? Uh, or is this just NATO flexing its muscles? So let's get blunt. Let's get blunt. The Blunt Post with Vic. Congressman Frank Pallone, a progressive caucus member, was sworn in for his 17th full term in the U.S. House of Representatives on January 3, 2021. Since 1988, Congressman Pallone has represented New Jersey's 6th Congressional District. Congressman Pallone serves as a leader on critical environmental issues, women's right to make her own health care decisions. He led the passage of the Affordable Care Act, the ongoing fight for equal representation and equality for all Americans. He stood up to his own party in opposing the Defense of Marriage Act and continues to be a leader in the fight for true equality for LGBTQ Americans. He serves as a co-chair of the Congressional Caucus on Armenian Issues. In 2002, he was awarded the Mekhitar Ghosh Medal by the President of Armenia. Congressman Pallon? Hi, Vic. How are you? I am well. Yourself? Good, good. Thank you so much for doing this. Of course. <laughs> With your schedule and everything on your plate, I'm very grateful. Oh, you're welcome. Is your, your, are you Armenian? Yeah, I am. My last name was butchered through multiple generations. No, I figured it was probably ended with an I-A-N, but now, the way it is now, it sounds like it's Italian. But no, you look no, I get that sometimes. But you look Armenian. <laughs> yes, I'm all Armenian. They, they do doubt me, though, when I, when I go to Armenia at the airport. I always get that sort of, that sort of uh, suspicious look at first. And no, I'm definitely Armenian. I tell them, look at my nose. Does it look like, you know, it's not Armenian? Well, Italians and Armenians look a little like, but I, you, you definitely look Armenian. <laughs> true, true. Well, first, I just want to thank you. I've been, uh, I've been a super fan of yours for many years. Um, you have truly been a, a crusader for, I don't want to say Armenian rights because uh, it's not all about us. And we are in America and it's about everyone's human rights. Um, but for sure, um, for a tiny, <laughs> tiny nation and tiny uh, diaspora, uh, we couldn't have uh, had anyone to fight for us um, and what's happened with between genocide recognition that you managed to get to the finish line in 2019 and uh, and now we've put something else on your plate so I just want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. Oh, you're welcome thank you. So Congressman <clears throat> um, I just want to ask you first that just a general question your perspective on uh, what happened in 2020 with the attack on Artsakh? Uh, of course, I know, you know, from your your statements and such. But maybe in hindsight, what's your perspective on what happened? Well, I think that um, you know you always have to take these dictators' uh, word when they say they're going to attack you, or they're going they say they're going to. Uh, resolve things through military means, you know, I think a lot of people say, well, if, do they really mean that? But I usually take them on the word when they say they're going to do things bad. And, uh, you know, basically all along, Aliyev has been saying that he intends to resolve the Artsakh uh, situation through military means, and that's what he did. Um, I think that he had, um, you know, two advantages maybe that we didn't realize one was that he would have direct support from uh, Turkey, you know, with its 
generals and its, uh, and its men and its uh, equipment. And that also um, they were able uh, over the last 10 or 20 years to upgrade their military uh, so that they had um, new technological means of, of conducting the war, particularly the drones that um, were very high tech and that uh, Armenia did not have or didn't have access to. Um, so to me, those were the most uh, important aspects of this that were maybe not anticipated. I'm sure some anticipated them, but I didn't. And I think a lot of Armenians didn't anticipate it. Um, and I also think that um, there was this notion that somehow Russia was going to prevent uh, Aliyev from going to war, which they did not do. Um, thankfully, they did come in at the end. And, and, and I guess from what we could see, save Artsakh from being totally overrun. But, uh, you know, because of the fact that now um, the Armenian Artsakh are separated other than through the Lachin Carter, which is controlled by Russia, um, it is much harder to defend uh, Artsakh uh, militarily. And, um, you know, we just have to uh, accept the fact that this occurred and see what we can do to protect Artsakh, keep it Armenian, uh, through diplomatic means um, and, um, you know, do whatever we can to, 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 to secure it for the future, whether that be military, diplomatic or whatever. But the military options are more limited now because of the separation of the land area. Correct. Um, I want to ask you about the diplomatic means, but uh, a question about your you called on Congress to investigate Azerbaijan for war crimes. Where do you think that's going to uh, going to go considering Azerbaijan's uh, very powerful lobby and uh, its uh, resources, uh, well, you know, oil and gas for uh, so many Western powers? Well, I wouldn't worry so much. I, I'm not to say to reject it completely, but I do think that this war has landed most of the West, uh, you know, clearly on the side of Armenia, right? In other words, if you ask, um, congressman, your typical congressman, uh, even if they're not part of the Armenian caucus, which so many of us are, uh, whether they be Democrat or Republican, they realize that Azerbaijan was the aggressor, they realize that Turkey was behind it. They don't see Azerbaijan or Turkey as allies, even though anymore, even though uh, Turkey is still part of NATO. I think most members of Congress would see Turkey increasingly as a threat and an enemy rather than an ally not only because of what they've done in, um, in Artsakh, but also what they've done elsewhere uh, in the region and in other, par in other parts of the Mideast and, and uh, the Mediterranean. Um, so um, I wouldn't worry so much that, you know, Western allies see, uh, you know, uh, Azerbaijan's gas or natural resources as a factor here. I think the, the concern is that um, Armenia and Artsakh are, you know, more dependent on Russia for their security than ever. And, and we wish that that wasn't the case. I mean, we want to step up and have the United States more involved in, in the security of Armenia, Artsakh, more link our trade and our economy, um, and also be very supportive of these democracies, you know, because, I mean, Armenia and Artsakh at, at this point, or of the former Soviet republics or, or autonomous regions or probably the, you know, one of the most democratic uh, there is, and that's important to us. Um, so, uh, you know, our media caucus and myself have really been trying to step up and say, look, the US needs to get more involved in the Minsk process uh, in, in relations and trade with Armenia and, and Artsakh, even though we don't recognize Artsakh as an independent country, we recognize that it's Armenian and that its future must remain Armenian. I like that. I like that you you kind of gave me a soundbite for the end of the film, which I want to end it on a hopeful note when you said that, um, uh, you know, after this war, after this attack, uh, most people or most uh, Western powers see Azerbaijan and Turkey as the aggressor because Sometimes even me as a journalist who sort of lives this 24-7 almost, uh, just reading constantly, uh, 
I feel like some organizations and bodies and agencies seem a little tone deaf. So one doesn't really know, but you are from inside out, you see this. So it's really good to hear. This is The Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. I am your host, Vic Jaramie. You're listening to my interview with the Honorable Congressman Frank Pallone. In terms of diplomacy, and you just mentioned the OSCE's Mintz Group, I was just reading a few days ago from the Russian delegation that having a challenge going to Artsakh in order to sort of you know, reignite this uh, process in peaceful means. And I thought if, if Russia and the US and France are having a hard time getting in Artsakh for you know, what is a, a diplomatic uh, process, what, what chance do we have? Well, I mean, the, I mean, the Minsk group is being held up, you know, primarily right now by Azerbaijan, right? In other words, they don't want to participate. And um, part of that is to say that, you know, if the Minsk group co-chairs want to visit the region, they have to go through Baku and not through the Lachin corridor, which is absurd. Right. Um, but, I mean, it's, it's an overall policy of, the, of Aliyev saying, you know, we don't really want the Minsk group involved in deciding the fate of Artsakh, and we have to insist on that. Um, but there, you know, Aliyev is, is increasingly not interested, as I have said, in a diplomatic uh, uh, settlement. If, you know, I don't know, maybe I use the word settlement. Um, I mean, that's clear. He continues to say that, um, you know, Artsakh is belongs to Azerbaijan, and we will determine its fate. And uh, right now, the only, you know, the only uh, practical uh, way that that's being prevented is by the presence of the Russian troops, which is important. But I hate to say, I hate to see Russia play an increasingly uh, significant role because I worry about how much they can be dependent on to defend Armenia and Artsakh. But right now we have to recognize that they're the only they're the only uh, game in town. Without them, uh, you know, uh, Ali might just you know continue the war in Artsakh. Yeah, I mean, um, uh, Russia proved to be less reliable than imagined in the in the beginning, and it's at some point we didn't know if it was playing all three sides. Uh, but as you said, unfortunately, it got to a point where no one else stepped in and it was either the Russians or they would uh, basically do complete ethnic cleansing of Artsakh and what was left, including Stepanakert. Where, where does it go from here if, if Aliyev is not letting Minsk group will go into Artsakh? Uh, to investigate and to restart the process. Is, is the U.S. Uh, able to, in, you know, inject or insert some power? Yeah, I mean, look, I think that um, we should insist on the Minsk group because that's, you know, it was set up for that purpose, right? But, um, you know, I, there's a lot of things going on that I think could lead to Azerbaijan ultimately, or Aliyev ultimately, uh, you know, participating again in the Minsk group process. I mean, obviously, you know, uh, the, uh, the Armenian government is, you know, meeting with the Russians. Uh, um, they're also meeting with uh, Turkey, right? I mean, I, I think that any effort to reach out uh, through diplomatic means with Turkey, with Russia, with Azerbaijan, I mean, all these things are useful. And, we want to get away from this idea that uh, everything's going to be resolved militarily, right? Um, the threat not only to Artsakh, but to Armenia itself in the south and the border areas where they've been, you know, clashing. Um, and so my hope is that as all these diplomatic uh, maneuvers continue, that ultimately we can get back to the Minsk group. Uh, and that would involve the United States and France as well as Russia. Um, but it's important for the United States to continue to say, look, we're here. We want to use the Minsk group. We're going to be involved in Armenia. We're going to give humanitarian assistance to Armenia, to Artsakh. We, we want the prisoners of war returned. All these things, many of which have been initiated by, you know, here in Washington by the Armenia caucus, are important to 
make the point that this needs to be resolved diplomatically. But keeping in mind all the time that we take the position that Artsakh has and the people there have a right to self-determination and they have a right to determine their own faith as Armenians. I mean, we're never going to get away from that. That's that's really important. That's at the essence of what we're talking about. Um, in terms of the, you know, I'll just speak for myself. I was very excited for a, for administration change when President Biden came to power. And uh, of course, um, I won't even get into it. But I mean, I personally think that uh, President Trump being in the White House uh, enabled, especially Erdogan, uh, but also Aliyev to do what they did. So I was very hopeful when President Biden came and of course he recognized genocide after 106 years, but then a week later, Section 907 was lifted uh, and this, um, you know, this massive military aid was given to Azerbaijan. But moving away from that, because I've heard all the sort of reasoning behind it and all of that. This is The Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. I am your host, Vic Jurami. You're listening to my interview with the Honorable Congressman Frank Pallone. What, with with people like yourself and other uh, members of Congress, Senator uh, Menendez and Congressman Schiff and Congresswoman Speer and, and such, and many others, what is happening, or I should say, what isn't happening? Is there like a blockade to the State Department or the White House? Well, I think that the, that the you know, before the November 2020 uh, war began, those of us within the Armenian caucus, the co-chairs, uh, myself and others, were pushing the State Department um, not to provide this $100 million in aid to Azerbaijan. As soon as we found out that it had been authorized, we still were trying to prevent it from actually being sent, right? And the, um, you know, the, the, the State Department takes this position, which I reject, that this was not military assistance. Because we had always had an agreement that any military assistance, be it training or whatever, had to be in a parity basis between Armenia and Azerbaijan. And they took a position, this was for customs, inspection, drug interdiction from the borders in Iran through the Caspian Sea. To me, that was all nonsense. But I think they really believed it. I mean, I, I, you know, Vic, it, it, you know, maybe they're just naive. I don't know what the word is. But they really believed that this had nothing to do with the war. Now, I do think that some of that could have been used in the war, right? But beyond that, it sent a very bad signal that we were going to send all this assistance to uh, Azerbaijan, and we weren't doing anything for Armenia, right? So, um, you know, part of what we're doing now, too, and I don't know if this answers your question, is trying to convince the State Department that there shouldn't be any more military assistance or anything like it, you know, to Azerbaijan. You know, that's actually an amendment that we have to the Foreign Operations Appropriations Committee, pass the House, hopefully we get it, uh, you know, an agreement with the Senate, I guess, to the president. Um, also that, um, um, you know, that the prisoners of war, we have sections in the, uh, in the defense authorization bill that already passed and was signed into law that says that the prisoners of war have to be returned. So we're trying, I, I hate to say we're educating the State Department, but in a fashion it is, right? It's like, you know, you can't make process. Yeah, you can't make these mistakes. You can't buy into this notion that you're going to help Azerbaijan, and it's going to be used for peaceful means. That's just not true, right? I mean, it's a lot easier to make those arguments now than it was before the war because they hadn't taken military action. I think a lot of people in the State Department never believed it was going to happen. But, um, but um, and we also have um, this report that was, uh, that was put in the um, uh, defense authorization bill that, that I had the language that, you know, looks at human rights abuses uh, in, in Azerbaijan. So we're trying to, and you know, ultimately, I would even advocate sanctions against Azerbaijan or Turkey itself, but that's hard to get, you know? So I guess what I'm trying to say is, I don't want to give the impression that the Biden administration was purposely doing anything uh, that was harmful. And this stuff actually began before Biden during the Trump administration. I think you're right when you say though that 
Um, the problem with Trump and the difference between Trump and Biden, one of the differences, you know, Trump, you know, wasn't a big advocate for, for democracy, right? I mean, I got to be honest, right? So he cozied up to Putin, he cozied up to, to Erdogan because I think he liked their, their, their kind of strong men dictatorial attitude, you know? And the Biden administration clearly understands that democracy in uh, Armenia, the aftermath of the Velvet Revolution, and certainly in Artsakh as well, um, has, has, is, is something precious and needs to be encouraged. And is it a sign of, you know, their, the Armenians' ties to the West and to the United States? I mean, I never meet with the ambassador uh, from Armenia, or today we actually met with the, uh, the National Assembly president, the equivalent of the speaker. And when we met with the prime minister, anytime I was in uh, uh, Armenia after the Velvet Revolution, all they do is talk about democracy and how important it is and the importance of the parliament. You know, yeah. this is, uh, and that has been conveyed. And I think the Biden administration is very much aware of that's why we need to step up and be more supportive of Armenia, in part because of the democratic values that they share in the aftermath of the Velvet Revolution, which I think were always there, but manifested themselves after the Velvet Revolution in a very obvious way and continue to. Absolutely. I was going to say that because, you know, I'm, you know, I don't hold back. And the fact is that, that we had, there were a lot of uh, issues with democracy in Armenia from 91 to 2018. And it is a young, uh, you know, the democracy part is about three, four years old, and, and it could revert back to having oligarchs control parts of government. So it is really important. And I think uh, Armenia is put in a really fragile position um, where it doesn't have a lot of natural resources to offer. It doesn't have a lot of uh, um, you know, neighbors that are, are friendly and Russia is not very reliable. Uh, thank goodness for, you know, the diaspora and uh, people like you, Congressman, who, uh, who advocate for human rights. I don't want to take too much of your time. I have uh, just, uh, well, my last question would be on a positive note, going forward and being in the solution, right? So, People, you know, some people are pessimistic or not hopeful. Um, what tangible and, uh, you know, just realistic, hopeful uh, things do you have to, to say or see? Or, of course, you don't have a, a, you know, a crystal ball, but do you see coming up that we can sort of uh, be hopeful about, if you will? Well, I really want to stress to the Armenian Americans and, you know, the diaspora, I guess we call them, how important it is to continue to be involved, right? To continue to talk to your members of Congress and your senators about Armenian issues, to tell them to you know, join the Armenian caucus, to continue to be aggressive about promoting Armenia, because that's important. I mean, you know, a lot of what we do in the Armenian caucus only happens because of the diaspora, you know, contacting members and, um, you know, I, I guess I could say two things. I mean, you know, I when I came here to Congress over 30 years ago, uh, and if you had told me that we were going to see the day when the Armenian Genocide uh, Resolution passed in the House and the Senate and was, and was openly, uh, uh, you know, stated by an American president, I would have said, I don't know if I'm ever going to see that day. We saw that. And a lot of it was because of the continued act activism of the, Armenian diaspora. And the other thing I would say is, look, we've all studied Armenian history. Armenians have been around for, I would say, at least well, probably about 3,000 years that we can figure that we can go back to, you know, the ancient civilizations. And, um, and they're here to stay. In other words, you know, a lot of people come and go on. There's certainly been ups and downs, periods when there was no Armenia, at least no independent Armenia. So, you know, take a solace in the fact that, um, that um, we can accomplish things and we're going to keep Armenia strong and we're going to, you know, have a, make sure that our stays Armenian 
But a lot of that, at least from a U.S. point of view, is dependent on continued activism by the diaspora. So please, uh, people like yourselves, Vic, that's why I asked you if you were Armenian, although I could just look at you and tell. Uh, <laughs> they, uh, they, uh, they play an important role in all this and influence what we do in Congress. So thanks again. No, thank you, uh, Congressman. Absolutely. It's faith without works is dead. You can't have blind, blind faith. And we certainly can't just expect our members of Congress to just go like that and things happen. We've, we've got to do the work too. Congressman uh, Pallone, thank you so much. I truly, truly appreciate it. Hope to meet you someday. And, Absolutely. Uh, and hope to maybe watch the finished film with you. Maybe not, <laughs> but either way, you'll get I to see it. All right. Thanks a lot, Vic. Take care. Thank you. You too. Well, that was my interview with uh, Congressman Frank Pallone from New Jersey, uh, an interview I'd been <laughs> hoping and wishing for for a long time. So it was truly an honor. I'm very grateful. Uh, thank you, Congressman, for your time, uh, for doing the show, as well as uh, doing the interview for my upcoming documentary film, Motherland. Uh, much, much, much appreciated. <laughs> Before we go, I'd like to thank my producer, Ricky Herrera, without whom this show would not be possible, and KPFK, the station that brings you unfiltered and commercial-free news, opinion, and hopefully some inspiration. Thank you for joining me today on The Blunt Post with Vic. Tune in next Monday at 6 a.m. for another episode. For more information, please visit thebluntpost.com. You can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Vic Jarami, at V-I-C-G-E-R-A-M-I. Thank you. The Blunt Post with Vic.